Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Baker, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Vic Bacru, the founding chief medical officer of Circulo Health and the outgoing COO and CFO of Conseo Sano, a patient engagement solution that allows payers and providers to better connect with their multicultural Medicaid and Medicare patient populations. As the global pandemic continues to disproportionately affect communities of color in the U.S., Conseo Sano found itself at the center of a difficult discussion of how to create trust in a medical system that has historically grossly mistreated marginalized groups, especially Black, Asian, Latinx, and Native American communities. After graduating from medical school, Vic moved to Central America to support the growth of the Foundation for International Medical Relief of Children, an organization he founded and ultimately built up to over 10 pediatric and women's health ambulatory centers across eight countries with over 3,000 full-time staff and volunteers when he left in 2010. After spending a few years managing PNLs and working as a physician leader, Vic jumped back into the entrepreneurial world with First Opinion, an early telehealth startup where he served as the COO during several successful rounds of fundraising before departing in early 2017. Vic spent over four years leading Conseo Sano, and as he'll be announcing on this podcast going forward, He's joining Circulo as the founding chief medical officer. Circulo just raised $50 million as part of their Series A raise, led by Drive Capital, General Catalyst, Oak HCFT, and SVB Capital, to enter into the managed Medicaid space with their partner, Olive. So Vic, one of our traditions for guests on the podcast is to ask a bit of an icebreaker question. Okay. So what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh gosh, a bus driver, a school bus driver. I had the best school bus driver when I was growing up. Kenny <laughs> picked me up reliably, took me to school, played music, interacted with the kids. I was so uh, inspired <laughs> by him and still remember him to this day. He was a part of my daily life and just so friendly and, and so sincere and really became a part of our family in many ways. You know, uh, we got to see him every day. I really actually, you know, through elementary school and early middle school, wanted to be a bus driver. And then there was a period where I, Ms. Alamina played the recorder so well in music class that I wanted to be a singer and a musician. <laughs> As you can imagine, growing up in an Indian household, uh, these were not necessarily ideas that my parents embraced. They, you know, <laughs> given my love of science at the time, and, and frankly, as I as I grew up and, and entered high school and so forth, and really enjoyed biology and chemistry, not really physics. Um, though Mr. Casella was great, uh, but but you know a lot of those uh, a lot of those teachers that you have, they're really impactful in, in some of your life choices. And my parents uh, certainly steered me toward more of a medical career, and I embraced it because I loved you know uh, so much about it. I had the chance to shadow, and actually my senior year in high school, I actually didn't go to high school. I went to the hospital and did a program that was like a pre-professions you know type program, a vocational training type program and got patient exposure and exposure to clinicians and saw the amazing contributions of our nurses and other advanced practice providers and doctors too, of course. And that's the path that I chose ultimately. But yeah, no, I, growing up, I wanted to be, uh, wanted to be a bus driver and I still love driving. Even through college, I was the guy, sober guy, because <laughs> I don't drink very much. I was a sober guy who would rent 15 passenger vans and do the nightclub circuit and, uh, you know, uh, and clean out the vomit candidly and more than, more than a few times. I got old quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, all the patients and consumers you've impacted will probably thank your parents for dissuading you from becoming a bus driver. That's definitely one of the most unique answers I think we've gotten so far. So that's, that's great. great. <laughs> yeah, no, we're super happy to have you here. 
And you've had a really fascinating career journey to date. I know you started with medical school. You started a multinational nonprofit, P&L management with health systems. And finally, you've led multiple early stage digital health startups, including most recently Conseo Sano. So, I mean, as you reflect on your career, what has made you so flexible in your ability to be effective across such different business models? Gosh, that's a loaded question. And there's so many different ways you could take something like that. But I'll say at a very high level, a key aspect of managing across different environments is your ability to listen effectively to the teams around you. It really, at the end of the day, is about finding ways to swim the same direction, to achieve alignment, to persevere through the difficult times. And you're not going to get to the other side of the river if you don't sort of work collaboratively and, and find a way to honor all of the incredible contributions of the people who are there with you. So I think that's been a large part of the journey so far. That's amazing. And Vic, before we get into more of the specifics of sort of your career journey across all these different organizations, I know you have some exciting news to exclusively share with the Pulse podcast listeners. So why don't I give you the floor? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you reached out to do this uh, session, you know, I was in a period of exploration and I'm excited to share that I have made the decision to join one of our country's newest health plans. I'll be taking on a role uh, in a few weeks from now with Circulo Health, an organization that is going to build from the ground up a Medicaid-focused health plan and really try to bring a better member experience, a better provider experience to the ecosystem and to do it in a market that hasn't received the attention it rightly deserves. Medicaid has been underinvested in for years, and we need to do a better job of bringing a digital-first product to market in the health insurance space to really stay current with what the needs are of the populations that we as a society have to do a better job caring for. Well, that's incredibly exciting news. So congratulations. I'm sure it's a little bit bittersweet leaving Conseo Sano, but I, I think you, you've left it in a much better place at this point. And just as context for some of our listeners, Circulo just raised $50 million as part of their Series A, uh, led by Drive Capital, General Catalyst, Oak HCFT, and SVB Capital. There's been a lot of recent wave of exits in mature insure tech businesses focused on the managed Medicare space. But just as you said, managed Medicaid hasn't seen that similar level of funding. So Circulo is really on that leading edge of the trend into managed Medicaid, attempting to address some of the barriers to health equity that have been traditionally too costly to address at scale. So on that concept of health equity, it seems to be a thread that's uh, pulled throughout your entire career. So how do you define health equity? And what was the moment you knew it was something you'd be willing to dedicate your life to? Wow. I wish we had hours to talk about, you know, sort of how to define health equity in particular. You know, I often think about health equity in several dimensions, but the short answer is health equity is not about providing equal access to the same tools to improve health. It's more about understanding where someone is in their journey and how do you meet them where they're at? How do you bring the tools, resources, capabilities of our healthcare system to achieve the same outcomes, perhaps, to make sure that we are not having stage four breast cancer being diagnosed in anyone? That is a goal we should all set our minds toward achieving. A single mom of three who works two jobs and takes great pains to provide for her family and to get medical care for her children, but does so at the expense of her own health is unacceptable. We as a healthcare system have to figure out how to solve that issue, how to support that family, and how to make not just healthcare more accessible, but how to build a relationship 
with the people that we're trying to serve. So tons more that I could share on, you know, again, how I view health equity, but it doesn't mean that we're providing the same tools. It means that we're providing the tools that are needed for each individual. And, and that's a, you know, an individual patient member type question, not necessarily a, in the aggregate population health type consideration. You really have to understand each person. You can do it with technology. That's entirely possible and and what we should do, but the individual patient and member has to be served based on where they're at in their own journey. You know, the second part of your question about key moments, um, there have been several that have been very formative for me. The first I'll share as a very young child, I remember pretty distinctly being in the car with my mom and we were driving. I grew up in upstate New York, a pretty rural area, though our claim to fame now is that we have both the Lowe's and a Home Depot in the same zip code. So source of great pride in our, in our community. Um, there are too many that are like that, by the way, uh, in the same zip code, I'll call out again. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there was this moment when we were, uh, and this is before those uh, establishments came to town, we were driving along and, you know, there was a car that was uh, much older and had uh, quite a lot of damage to it. It was parked on the side of the street. And as we were driving by, I remember pointing out the car to my mom. It was my mom and I in the car. And I remember pointing it out and sort of uh, acknowledging that the car wasn't in the best of shapes and they should do something about that, right? Pretty naive as a, as a child mm-hmm. at that exact moment. And uh, you know, my mom pulled the car over, grabbed my chin with her hand and looked me straight in the eyes and really started to explain to me the inequalities that exist in our society and why things are sometimes you know, different for different families and how blessed and fortunate we are that we have food on the table, we have roof over our heads, we have clothes and good school and all of the basics that are human rights right? Healthcare is a human right. Uh, so many other uh, aspects of daily living should be as well. And, uh, and nonetheless, it was an important moment that stuck with me through my career and I've anchored on it. You know, um, I can't go buy a car that, you know, sort of just represents what that family might be experiencing and not think about it. The second experience I'll quickly share with you that comes to mind is around, you know, my grandmother was a great source of inspiration in my life. She volunteered with uh, Gandhi selling bangles and doing uh, work. She was a civil rights leader and a teacher, which was really uncommon for women to be as active and involved. There were brief periods. This wasn't necessarily, you know, full-time. She raised a a family and and had a lot of responsibility on the home front as well. But she, at key moments, was involved in the civil rights movement and some of the activity that was happening in the late 40s and early 50s uh, in India. And when India and Pakistan were being formed as the British Empire um, or British rule was ending. So nonetheless, you know, some of these stories in my family have, have really inspired me to want to focus on, you know, doing what I can for underserved populations and trying to think more creatively about how do we get there? How do we get there as a society? Because it's, it's not okay. It's not right to just let the status quo evolve. And so many thoughts around income inequality over the last several decades that we could get into perhaps in a separate conversation. Yeah. I know we'll stay healthcare focused today, but it's really important. We must do better. I'm happy you brought this up because, I mean, it's important as you think about your journey to think about what motivated you. And it sounds like some powerful women in your life at an yeah. early age really had an impact on highlighting inequality and inequity is maybe a better term for it and instilling you with a desire to do something about it, which I think is amazing. And probably, and I don't know if you can add a little bit more context, led to you wanting to be a doctor in the first place. I know a lot of your medical career as well, you spent working on a foundation you founded, a foundation for international medical relief of children. 
I think you founded that in medical school. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Yep. Early on in my medical training, I uh, got the bug to put some of the knowledge to use and found like-minded individuals at JW where I went to school and really had some of that early excitement around uh, an entrepreneurial journey that was focused on doing good while solving a market need. We developed a business model that didn't rely on grants or donations. A lot of our funding came ultimately from people traveling to the project sites that we established, and that generated the revenue for the foundation that we needed to pay our staff and source medicines and pay for the the clinic space and so forth. And it turned out to be a great business model because 20 years ago, there just really weren't a lot of organizations that offered medical missions, trips for both medical and non-medical volunteers. So we expanded the market, if you will, by inviting non-medical volunteers to join, often, you know, partners or children, even some of our medical volunteers, and then eventually business school students and others who wanted to travel and participate. And in fact, uh, one of them from the class of 2008, Fernando Torres, ended up joining our board. So, you know, there are pathways, uh, there there are reasons, you know, along the way where we were able to attract, I think, the types of leaders and talent that helped us to continue to fuel our growth. And so, yes, that was an early uh, stake in the ground that, you know, just through cultivation, you know, ended up uh, really being meaningful. And I'm so proud of the work that they do. Um, I'm not operationally involved, as I think we'll get to in a moment, but still serve on the board. And I think that's a really good transition into talking about Conseo Sano, which is an organization that I think prides itself on doing more than just addressing some of the physical barriers maybe to access, but more of the cultural barriers to access. Over the course of the pandemic, Conseo Sano found itself in a really unique position a lot of interesting challenges that I would love to dig into a little bit more. So just to give a little bit of context uh, to some of our listeners, can you tell us about the mission at Conseo Sano and, and why is it important to engage culturally diverse populations differently? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, before I jump into that, I'll say I cannot rave enough about my experience at Conseo Sano and the people and the team that are there currently. And I was completely torn about this decision, you know, being able to join a founding team for a new health plan focused on the line of business, Medicaid, that I'm most interested in, in innovating around was really a hard thing to pass up. But I will say that, you know, I remain, I expect to be connected to Conseo Sano in substantial ways in the months and years ahead. I think the world of my boss and uh, the founder of Conseo Sano, Abner Mason, for those who don't know him, reach out. He's phenomenal and a great leader and someone I admire and, and respect immensely. And so just to get to your question, the healthcare system was not built to serve in a culturally relevant way and certainly not given the demographics and the changing demographics in our country over the last 30, 40 years. The healthcare system does a great job in many pockets of need. So if I think about the FQHCs, the federally qualified health centers in our country, and if I think about the communities they serve, they do a phenomenal job. I'm continually inspired by the work being done. They are delivering culturally relevant services. They are serving culturally diverse populations effectively. They need more resources as always, as you can imagine. They need more technology. They need more innovation. It's hard to sell to them. And somewhat uh, you know, oriented to a business of healthcare conversation, there are lots of great opportunities in this market of FQHCs that need to be addressed and that are being addressed you know, by the digital health environment, at least in part. And Conseo Sano got its start, really, in serving providers like FQHCs and IPAs focused on underserved Medicaid uh, populations. And so the need for it really stems out of this growing diversity 
in our country, combined with the overall healthcare system, short of these pockets I've just mentioned, not really oriented toward serving people and meeting them where they're at when they don't look like you and me, or they don't have the types of jobs that we might have in the circumstances in life. And so when we think about serving the underserved, there are so many dimensions of care that need to be accounted for. And Conseo Sano's role is to provide education, awareness, to help connect the dots, to provide some of that care coordination, and to do it in over 25 different cultures and languages. And so we've taken the premise that culture, your attitudes, beliefs, traditions, values, these are the nuts and bolts what drive your decision-making and your behavior with regards to your own health, um, and even more broadly in your life for that matter. But until we understand those data elements, until we distill them, much the same way Netflix might help suggest a movie or a TV show that you might enjoy watching, we intend to understand your culture through conversation, through interaction, through publicly available and privately available data elements, and then to put it to use and try to build you a relationship, a trusted relationship with you. Because if we can get the content right, if we can get it to resonate, we're more likely to get a response, to get engagement, and then to be able to serve your needs. Can't serve your needs if I don't understand what they are. Or, and, and I can't just ask you sometimes because I haven't formed a relationship. We haven't established a rapport. You don't trust the banner under which I'm contacting you. Can say Osano is a white label, right? So anyway, so much more I could share, but I'd love for you to redirect. <laughs> I'd love to stick on this element of trust. Because I think we're in the midst still of a global pandemic that has only really further highlighted some structural inequities that exist in this country. Barriers to health access and I would say discrimination that have led to disparities in how racial and ethnic minority groups have been affected by COVID-19. So how has Kinseo Sano been involved in creating a trusted relationship specifically during this time, during this pandemic, whether it relates to, to testing or outreach or, or tailoring some of that care? We've done so much, and we continue to do quite a bit um, on behalf of our clients. I was just mentioning that Conseo Sano is a white-label solution. So we operate under the banner of our clients, which are the likes of Anthem, United Healthcare, Molina, Centene, Humana, and so on. We've scaled from about 30,000 patients on contract in 2017 to over 150 million Americans today. And so the growth has been phenomenal in terms of the contracted covered lives. Now, not all of those generate revenue. Naturally, a subset, a couple million or so, are actually actually on active SOW at any given moment. And that's the growth opportunity for the company, right? Just to transparently represent where we are on our journey. But to your question, much of the role we have played during COVID and frankly, a lot of the growth that we experienced came in late 2019, pre-pandemic, as we you know, reached uh, several health plans on contract. And then through the pandemic, starting around March, April, there was a tremendous need for education and awareness. There was a tremendous amount of fear. There was a need for a relationship-focused technology platform to send SMS and reach out, even sometimes with live agent outbound call. Investors, please put the hands over your ears at this moment because you don't like the unit economics and I get it, but it is needed. We must serve those who don't have access to a cell phone or for whom we don't yet have a cell phone number. But I make the call and then you know we're able to get a cell phone number and convert, right? So it's worth the upfront investment. There is an ROI there. <laughs> you know, It's something we pay attention to very closely. But nonetheless, forgive the tangent. A lot of the work we did through the pandemic started with education and awareness, and it had to be done in a culturally relevant way. There isn't a single other platform that does it in as many languages and thinks about it in terms of how to get the content across 
in a way that becomes trusted, reliable, and informative. And so we played a strong role there. And you know, by quarter three, by the way, just to continue to be data-driven in our conversation today, we did approximately four times the total volume of work that we did in 2019. We did approximately four times that in quarter two alone of last year. So from a volume of messaging and calls and so forth, right, it was the busiest quarter we, until that point, had ever experienced as a company. And the second half of the year saw tremendous revenue growth. We got to break even. We raised our Series B. And the work we did through that second half of 2020 was really focused around telemedicine appointments, helping to schedule and provide awareness about the opportunity for people to participate, given some of the rules that had changed from a regulatory standpoint to enable reimbursement for telemedicine services in the FQHC setting and beyond. And so it was very important that patients be engaged and aware of their options if they don't feel comfortable going into a healthcare center. And it was very meaningful, I believe, to the clients that we serve and to the patients we serve. And so that formed the bulk majority of the work in in quarter three. And then starting um, in quarter four and really toward the later portion of quarter four after the election, there was a tremendous focus on renewed hope. Um, being able to reach out and circle back to some of the conversations we had had earlier in the year and to start raising awareness about the forthcoming vaccine. And some of our official first campaigns really didn't launch until quarter one of this year. And so we've done a tremendous amount of vaccine outreach, vaccine-related outreach on behalf of our clients and now potentially with some state governments, actually, as we try to further close the gap on individuals who may have vaccine hesitancy or more likely need a trusted voice at the table to help them answer the questions that are on their mind, right? They can get that information from their provider and we help set those appointments up for them, but they can also get some of that information through our platform. And that's really important and meaningful, we believe, to supporting the effort of encouraging people to get vaccinated so that we can finally make it past the tremendous uh, situation we found ourselves in over the last uh, you know year plus now. Yeah, no, and that's really helpful context. And it sounds like the growth was unbelievable over that period. What were some of the business challenges that you ran into? That is unheard of growth and, and very quickly. So were there any business challenges that came with growing so fast? so quickly. Yeah, that's one of those gimme questions. You know, it's like, uh, you read my mind and, you know, your listeners can't see this, but I am balder today than I was a year and a half ago. I I have less hair. Um, I I see it in the mirror. And if you did the frame of, you know, uh, how much hair I had pre-pandemic versus now, uh, I think there would be a noticeable difference. It's something I'll do a before and after. I'll include it with the post just so everyone realizes some of the stress that you've Yeah. So when you talk about business challenges, you know, I mean, candidly, there was a lack of access to capital through some part of that journey. And that's what really, you know, was really challenging about being able to scale the business in response to market need and client demands and patient needs, uh, you know, was when you, when you are capital constrained as a business and you have to make tough choices and allocate resources in the right direction, you know, to grow the business, it was juggling a lot of, yeah, juggling a lot of competing priorities and you end up ruffling feathers even with your own team sometimes, right? You're overworking your team. You're you're making demands that are just not reasonable. And you're in a pandemic when they themselves are challenged by what's going on around them. They're suddenly all remote. You know, they're uh, feeling at times socially isolated. You know, there are just there are challenges that we definitely dealt with. And I'm proud to report that through Abner's leadership, 
we were able to make it through in a very positive way. And all said and done, you know, we were able to close the year out with a great Series B raise that now is really going to fuel our continued growth uh, going forward and the ability to build additional technology that, that we are very excited about. Yeah, no, I think that's amazing. And it's been a tremendous success that led to that uh, Series B raise. But yeah, I'd love to just return to, in general, the funding story of Senseo Sano. It sounds like you guys had tremendous support from some of those early investors, and it sounds like a really wholesome, positive experience throughout. But to talk about some of maybe the negative aspects of some of the fundraising, I know the founder and CEO of Senseo Sano, Abner Mason, published an article in September of last year that discussed some of the challenges of trying to raise capital as a Black founder and with a leadership team of color. So how have you found navigating a landscape that's predominantly led by white men? And I think there was a stat that he quoted, I think only 1% of all venture capital funded startups are currently being led by Black individuals. So would love just some context of how you found that funding experience overall. Yeah, it was hard. It was a slog. We, you know, Abner and I have made a decision to not hide our story, right? We want the world to know that you are not alone if you're a diverse founder and you're looking to raise capital. It is challenging. You know, I have to say that, you know, the Conseo Sano journey started in late quarter three of 2019. And, you know, we sort of, in the early days of our fundraise, got a little distracted by a growth equity firm that spent probably 15 or 16 meetings with us and went very deep on diligence and took a lot of trouble to go out of their way to get to know us. And and we felt so honored through that process. But then in December, we learned that their intent was to merge us with another player in the space. And it was really tough news because we'd invested a lot in that relationship and, and clearly hadn't read the room right. And so there were learnings certainly on our side through this process. So it is a two, you know, it is a two-way conversation. And 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 as diverse founders, sometimes, you know, you've got to be savvy enough to do your best to read through the lines. You know, we were in New York. We thought we were going to get a term sheet in March. And because of the, you know, sort of uncertainty around the pandemic, uh, we showed up at lunch and we didn't. We didn't get it. We in fact got told that they're going to wait. Some of their LPs had pulled out of their new third fund. And they weren't able to commit. We were going to be the first investment out of that new fund. And that drove some really tough months in quarter two as we were scaling four times the volume um, of what we had done in the entire 2019, as I mentioned earlier. So just to really address your question, we ultimately got there because we brought the business in line, got to break even and made tough, tough choices, including at certain points, uh, downsizing in certain areas of the company that we needed to make it through. We would have gone under had we not. And so you're sometimes faced with those difficult decisions. And that's what I mentioned earlier, a lack of capital ended up you know, resulting in some really tough choices. And I think we might have accelerated some of the progress we've made today if we had had capital at a time when you know, there was uncertainty in the market. And so when you find Alicia Shapiro's and the Robert Garber's and the seven wires of the world, you honor them to your fullest extent. So yes, that's true. There are, it is an industry dominated by white men, as you phrased them. But there are plenty of positive stories if you deeper and find the right partners. And so it's not all doom and gloom is what I would want you know, listeners out there, especially diverse listeners, to take away from this conversation that it may feel uphill at times, but network with your other founders. Um, Abner, I, others are happy to share our journeys in a very granular way and who to avoid, candidly, right? Um, that at the end of the day, 
the venture capital industry is an information-driven industry, right? They, they really thrive on information and there's no difference in entrepreneurship, right? So sharing the stories about which investors are good partners, which ones are worth your time, frankly, which ones you ought to pitch to and which ones you ought to avoid. That's how Abner, myself and others, you know, sort of uh, try to be helpful to our peers because at the end of the day, <laughs> again, this is a very strong view perhaps, but I think there's a mentality that money is the most important aspect of the ecosystem in, in the startup land. And I can tell you with certainty it is not, right? There's plenty of access to capital for good ideas, good teams, and solid business models. And the money will find you if you, you know, do things in a positive way, if you conduct yourself in a positive way, if you focus your narrative correctly, if you, you know, represent the company in the way it ought to be represented and your team. You know, there's, there's so much opportunity here. I could ramble on for hours on this topic, you know, and and, and, and happy to do so anytime. So reach out. <laughs> no, I, and I think that was really helpful. And I think it's actually a good transition into maybe talking about Circulo. And I'm glad you ended on a positive note there. But I think Circulo is in this interesting position where managed Medicaid has historically been a little bit underfunded. Health insurance is not an industry that's well known for building strong relationships. And now you're targeting a segment that has, in some cases, deep mistrust of the medical system. So it seems like an uphill battle, but how do you think you're, you're going to bridge that gap going forward? Yeah, you know, there are so many considerations to make here. And social determinants are just that, like, you know, like you just, um, you know, referenced, they are determinants. What we need to do is think beyond what the determinants are. It's important to find out what those are, but it's more important to understand in a very granular way how those determinants connect to outcomes. Because until you bridge that gap, you can't really build a care delivery system and an ecosystem that serves the needs of, to your exact point, culturally diverse individuals who have a mistrust of the healthcare system. And I know we're talking about Circulo now, but at Conseo Asano, one of our uh, most fleshed out principles is that 100% of Americans are culturally diverse. The individual in Kansas and West Virginia may look similar on the surface, but they are culturally distinct. They have different ways, perhaps, of consuming information and interacting with the healthcare system and so forth. And, you know, as I think forward um, about my own journey at Circulo and about, you know, what we will be building there, um, much of it is related to really building a relationship in a culturally relevant way, no doubt, but in a way that enhances the member experience to a new level of interaction and the provider experience at that as well. So some of the methodology of operating the health plan, some of the principles and values of the team members that I've met along the way, historically, because of issues like systemic racism and just social justice issues, there is experiments quite candidly in certain communities of color, there are just real reasons that need to be addressed in our healthcare system, why people mistrust, right? There are real reasons why people mistrust and need to be addressed in our healthcare system. And so there's a lot of work to be done and it can't be done if we continue to operate in the fashion we are now, where we don't acknowledge, where we don't articulate, where we don't invite discussion, where we don't survey the fears that are out there and address them with trusted information sources, 
or the right framing through an, a technological pathway. There are ways to do this without live humans and probably actually better ways. If you think about some of the tools that we have in our arsenal, whether avatars or other relatable and fun and engaging imagery, we can do some really cool stuff. And I'm probably giving away too much, right? I'll get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually excited to talk about this because I think there's this paradox of being personalized while also trying to build scale and use technology to enable that scale. And so this is a digital health podcast, but I think we've spent the majority of the time talking about building relationships. How do you use technology to build relationships across wildly diverse cultures at scale? It's in the same way that Amazon has built just a phenomenally reliable and usable service. And when you think about healthcare, there aren't too many examples of where that's true. We're starting to see it. I opened up my Uber app the other day and found that I could have prescriptions delivered. If I switched my pharmacy, I think Nimble or I forget the name of their partner that's helping them do it. But these tools are coming to fruition. Now we've got to work on that relationship piece so people are aware of the tools and aware of what their insurance covers and it's even easier to use, right? That's the key here, that as we think about building relationships with the members that we are trying to serve, we've got to make the tools inviting, accessible, usable in a variety of languages and cultures, right? That's the key here is that the reason the broader healthcare system gets it wrong is because it's one size fits all healthcare. It's healthcare designed for the masses. It's you come to me and wait for two hours. And I and when you when you start the interaction that way, I am basically telling you that you don't matter. I am basically telling you that my time is more important than your time. I'm going to build an experience around the clinician instead of what we should be doing, which is building the experience around the patient or member. And until you shift and adopt that new mindset, that new framing, you know, that new way of thinking, I think is what I'm trying to say. Until you do that, you will not succeed, right? So just replicating the clinic environment, and I could name some platforms, you know, that, you know, that do exactly that, you know, and they call it scale and they call it innovation. And no, you haven't, you haven't recreated because that's what you need to do. And I think that's what Circulo is going to be really focused on doing with the right technology tools. We're very lucky to have, because of Sean Lane, the founder of both Olive and Circulo, we're very lucky to have this relationship with Olive that, you know, will will allow us to do some really exciting things in healthcare for, for the Medicaid population in particular. And I think it's a really interesting time in managed Medicaid. I think we look into a somewhat similar industry, managed Medicare, and we've seen tremendous amount of insure tech funding. I think recently names like Oscar, Alignment, Bright Health, all either with recent IPOs or, or soon to be executed public offerings. So why is now the right time to invest in managed Medicaid? Is it the technology? Is it Olive? Sort of what is enabling now to be the right time for innovation in, in insurance? Yeah, this is going to come across crude, but it's, it's always been the right time to invest and manage Medicaid. We should have done it you know, much, much sooner than I think we're starting to see in the industry. But some people have woken up to, thankfully, at least the opportunity that uh, remains in the space. At Conceosana, we had known about it and started working in it, you know, several years ago. And at Circulo, you know, I couldn't be more encouraged about 
approach that's being taken, Sean's vision, Jeff Grayling, our president, a lot of his experience at Centene. There are a lot of great people at the table that I think are going to leverage this moment. And so to your question, the moment is now because you finally have a meeting of the minds, you know, it, it often, you know, even when you're building technology, it's often about the people that are building it and that are, you know, moving a vision forward. And we finally have, I think, some of our most talented folks in the industry willing to spend time. And it's partially a result of the pandemic, right? I mean, we really highlighted through the pandemic, as you noted earlier, some of the inequities in our healthcare system. And when you have that, that national focus and that national conversation, out of it come, and frankly, just terrible, tragic uh, loss in, in our society with those who were affected by the pandemic, in particular, those who passed away from it. When you have that as front and center in people's minds, innovation and new ways of doing things come about. And I think that's why, you know, Heyman from General Catalyst and all the other investors that are really making the right bets with, you know, some of the most visionary folks in the entrepreneurial landscape, Sean and so forth, you know, you, you end up getting companies like Circulo that really will take a very different approach than the rest of the incumbents in the space that just yields better outcomes at the end of the day. It sounds incredibly exciting. And I think a lot of our listeners are MBA students. Yeah. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, uh, what are your hiring plans for the upcoming year and, and what kind of roles are you going to prioritize at Circula? Yeah, ambitious. I think we're trying to make it uh, to the low hundreds in terms of team size by the end of the year. So I'll be spending a good portion of my time recruiting um, from what I understand. And so, yeah, reach out, uh, get in touch. You know, We've got a couple other HCM uh, healthcare management folks. Um, for, for those of you in the program, it's, it's cult-like, but for those of you not in the program but want to be in healthcare, you're equally invited to get in touch. And so please do. Um, but, but Sally Poblete, really a, a quick shout out to her. She's an HCM grad um, and uh, the reason I'm at Circula. So you know, she, um, she's just a, a phenomenal leader and, and she's leading our, our provider network circle. And so quick shout out to her, but, uh, but get in touch by all means and don't make it one email. If you don't get a response, keep trying. Persevere <laughs> is the advice. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's great advice. And I think it ties into a lot of what we talked about today of building relationships with consumers. Uh, when founding a business, it sounds like building a relationship with your absolutely. team is, is equally important. So I really appreciate uh, you absolutely. joining us today. Vic, and uh, hopefully some of our listeners will be able to get in touch and continue to build relationships. Yeah, thanks forward. so much for the opportunity. And, and Tim, thank you for all the support along the way.